let's be upfront about the challenges of a breast cancer diagnosis with LGBTIQ plus communities. We know that breast cancer doesn't discriminate and it's important that at BCNA we are representing the diversity that exists in our network. Depending on who you are and how you identify, your experience can be different. So today we're talking to Mel, who was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2016 at the age of 36, and her partner Ricky about their experience of breast cancer and how they have navigated the system as a gender and sexually diverse partnership. Mel had fertility treatment, a single mastectomy, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. She has been with her partner for 19 years. Ricky's preferred pronoun is they, them. They were able to get married earlier this year despite a few COVID-19 related delays in a joyous celebration surrounded by family and friends. Just quickly, before we get going, a reminder that this episode is an unscripted conversation with our guests. The topics discussed are not intended to replace medical advice nor necessarily represent the full spectrum of experience or clinical option. Please exercise self-care when listening to this podcast as the content may be triggering or upsetting for some. Welcome to you, Mel and Ricky. Hi. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Yeah, so let's dive in. What did the breast cancer diagnosis for Mel do to your world? Yeah, it all came as a, a bit of a surprise. Um, it was, you know, sort of tied in around a Christmas, New Year's period as well. So there was, it was a bit hard to process sometimes because there was a lot of other stuff going on. Um, but it was a, a quite a busy year with all the different treatments um, and changes in life and things at that time. Was it a shock? Did it come as a shock for diagnosis? Oh, for sure. Um, and I think for me, because it was a bit staggered, they they initially thought it was sort of a a pre-cancer sort of style one um, at D- DCIS, and then they found it was this triple negative um, invasive one as well. Uh, so the treatment plan sort of changed a bit as we went. Um, and, yeah, it was definitely a shock. Um, I just kind of went a little bit into autopilot for quite a while um, and didn't really process some of it till a bit later. Mm. Ricky, you're the self-diagnosed warrior. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes I am. Yes. Yeah. How, how did you deal with Mel's diagnosis? Um, yeah, probably similar in the sense of it just, it, it felt like it came out of nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Um, we knew... Something wasn't quite right just from the symptoms Mel was having. Um, but I think, Which was what? Uh, it just came, it started initially as uh, a bleeding nipple, which at the time Mel was getting into a lot of running, um, just something that she, you know, realised she was very interested in doing. Um, Mel will say, you know, she was never a sporty person. So this was something that she, she picked up and just, just literally ran with it. Um, and, yeah, it was just just weird and we thought oh you know all the the stuff that we've been aware of in terms of um breast cancer and and picking it up early is to do with lumps um you know and at that time there wasn't really any major lump or anything that I could feel it was a bit tender but you sort of get that with you know normal cycles of life anyway yeah so So, I mean Mel Mel did the right thing she took herself off to the GP and, and started to get that process rolling which we're very thankful for because you know that's that's obviously the starting point for 
getting on top of it so early um, and then, yeah, it just happened so fast. You sort of, you didn't actually have time to think. You just had to get down and, and straight into it and, and go, right, okay, well, what do what's we need next? to do? <laughs> yeah, what's next and, and what's ahead of us type thing. So once you saw the GP and you got your diagnosis, Mel, as you proceeded through the health system and uh, various treatment, did you feel the need to come out uh, that Ricky was your partner? And if so, how did you do that? Um, I think because at that point we'd been together for over a decade, Um, we were thankfully quite established in the relationship. And so when we came to appointments, I think my main priority was to make it clear that Ricky was my significant other. Um, We weren't married, obviously, at that stage. We only got married this year. Um, But it was to be clear that if there was any major decisions to be made, (laughs) that Ricky was to be involved in that process. Um, And so I never really came into a room and said, is it okay if so-and-so comes in? I would just, Ricky just came with me to all the appointments um, and I just went, this is Ricky, my partner, um, and then carried on. Um, and so mm. I found that was a better way for us to go about it was just to be sort of open about it right up front. How was that received from health professionals or associated um, people that you came across in the yeah. course of your treatment? Um, pretty well. Mm. We were actually quite lucky. We obviously had um, thoughts on things and whether, you know, when I was recovering from surgery, is Rick going to be allowed in the room um, and different bits and pieces. Uh, but, yeah, we were actually didn't have any major issues throughout the whole process. Um, everyone was quite open um, and, uh, yeah, the, Rick was able to come to all the necessary appointments and things. Yeah, I think it, it wasn't really a, a question of if I would be coming along to to appointments at things, it was just like, okay, I'm here. Where's actually the seat that the partner sits in, you know, when Mel's having treatment or anything like that. Um, I have to admit I was quite proud of, of Mel. It was we never actually had that discussion of disclosure with health practitioners that were supporting Mel along the way. It was, you know, we just because we just didn't have time to do it, Mel just was quite open and honest. Um, and I think that certainly helps when entering a situation like this, if you set that standard or that line straight away, then it's there's no room for anything else to happen. So it was, yeah. Just- yeah, Ricky, you also um, are a community worker for the LGBTIQ plus communities. So your experience is varied, I take it, and not everyone has such a a welcoming or positive experience and I guess someone that isn't in a relationship might find a a level of nervousness. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in the work that I do with the community in general, um, I've just heard too many um, horrible stories, I guess, for, for people just going to see health practitioners for simple things, I guess, like a health checkup or, um, you know, all sorts of things like that where, Unfortunately, interactions uh, with medical professionals have been quite negative or quite ignorant or just plain right refusing to treat the individual because they are part of the LGBTIQA plus communities. Um, so I was, yeah, definitely worried. My my self-worrying status came into play, you know, quite strongly. And so, I, you know, Mel was focusing on what she needed to. I was f- focusing on the 
the bigger picture, I guess, for us as a couple and, you know, how is this going to be received? How are they going to treat us? Are we, you know, am I going to be ignored as the partner um, and things like that? So, yeah. So a, a positive uh, a positive experience for you. Mel, one of the first things that happened once you were diagnosed was the question of undergoing fertility treatment. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't ever something that I'd thought about sort of fertility at all. Um, we'd had discussions on kids across the years um, and it had not been a priority. Um, and so when the option was presented, because um, obviously during chemo, um, you can get a thing called chemo pause where your cycle stops. Um, and being a younger person, um, the concern would then be that the cycle doesn't start back up again um, and therefore you become infertile. Um, and so even though we hadn't really thought we wanted kids, once it came to that crunch point of do we do chemo or, or do the fertility next, um, I thought I didn't want to do it. So we said no to the fertility and then I had a bit of a meltdown. <laughs> so um, we're still, I'm not sure whether it was the fact of saying no to fertility or the realisation that chemo was about to start, um, but we reassessed it and thought, look, there's so many decisions happening right now. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to process. If we do the fertility option, that delays that decision for us by a few years because um, as part of the process, they um, store the eggs for us um, and there was no cost for the storage. And that's, that's free of charge too, yeah. Yes, mm. yes. So the storage is free. The procedure cost a little bit um, but nominal in the scheme of things. Um, and so we thought that would then give us five years to contemplate things, get through the actual treatment and everything. And if things didn't restore and we did want kids, we still had that that kind of backup measure there. So it was, I think it was that peace of mind we kind of went through that process. So it alleviated a little bit of that pressure to make all those big decisions yep. at that one time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just yeah. all it did was delayed chemo by about two weeks, I think, and, you know, a nominal cost. And then, yeah, it just took one of those pressure points off. BCNA's My Journey online tool is a new resource that gives instant access to trusted and up-to-date information which is relevant to your breast cancer journey. For more information, visit myjourney.org.au. As part of your treatment, you also uh, had a single mastectomy. How did yes. that... How did you deal with that emotionally and... Um, what have you have did you decide to do a reconstruction and if so why and yep. if not why not yep um we i'd never really thought about reconstruction um it due to my i've got smaller breasts and so the nature of the cancer and um, invasiveness that it was throughout the whole breast. So there wasn't an option at that stage really to do reconstruction. So uh, in some ways it was made easier because it was like this is what had to happen. So um, if we wanted to look at reconstruction and stuff, that was going to be a, a future timeline. Um, so it helped to just be able to go, yep, okay, this is happening right now. Um, it's obviously sort of Coming up, been about four and a half years since surgery, um, and so everything's obviously all healed and everything now. Um, but there is obviously that lopsidedness, um, which I've just grown to deal with. <laughs> um, I'm aware that 
for recon, there is a lot of other surgeries that you have to go through. Um, and, you know, people have positive experiences, but there's also quite a few that have negative experiences through that. So for me personally, um, I just chose not to do the recon. Um, if anything, I was probably thinking of potentially having the other side off just for symmetry. Um, but I'm quite happy with how I am. I don't bother wearing inserts or anything at the moment. It's all just, this is me. I've gone through a battle. This is just who I am now. So if people have an issue looking at it, just look away. (laughs) (laughs) Ricky, how did you process or or cope with uh, Mel having that single mastectomy? Um, I think once, you know, once things started to to show that they were quite serious, you know. I know Mel mentioned before that we sort of, this process started of just some, um, you know, low-key diagnosis, I think, if you know, better if there's better terms out there. Um, I, I do apologise. Um, you know, every cancer diagnosis is serious. Um, but once things started to show they were, they were quite serious, it was a matter of, right, let's get this out of Mel's body. Um, you know, I... The body itself is in Mel's control. That's it's in her domain. She has, um, you know, full autonomy and decisions over how she, how she, um, I guess, treats her body, how she deals with her body, and things like that. And I fully respect that decision um, for Mel as a person. But in terms of this being a health focus, it was most certainly one hundred percent her decision. So I always felt that any thoughts and, and opinions I had on the matter was actually irrelevant, to be honest. Um, I just wanted Mel to be healthy. That was my focus. You know, I, I want Mel to be around for decades to come. And if this was part of that process of ensuring that would happen, then that's what needed to happen. Um, I think both of us were mm. quite pragmatic about these decisions um, for this situation. Was there a sense of guilt at all that your partner's going through that and she's had to have a, a major physical alteration? Um, yeah, I think it was pretty tough in that regard. She's, you know, never had to have any surgeries in the past. You know, Mel's been pretty healthy all her life. Um we always joke about, I've always been the klutz, I've always the one, you know, I've had multiple surgeries under my belt um, for sport injuries, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, you know, and I guess as a person having the same body parts as, as Mel, it's, you know, was quite a lot of sadness, I guess, that one, this is the first surgery Mel's had in her, had in her life. Um, two, it was cancer related. And three, you know, Mel's had to have a body part removed um, from, you know, her, her body and it was yeah it was quite a complex set of emotions and I think as part of the process I just pushed them aside which is not necessarily a healthy coping mechanism um, but it's you know supporting someone through cancer is is complex it's it's challenging it, it's hard your, your focus is on that person so anything that you tend to feel you you do push aside you sort of it's not that you suck it up, but you just think, well, you know, whilst I'm important in this person's life, it's actually a priority to focus on my partner who's going through this really traumatic experience in all sorts of, of manner. And it wasn't until sort of, you know, in more recent years that we kind of discussed it again and, you know, there was 
elements of guilt from both sides of things. Um, but, yeah, at the time there wasn't an over-analysis on it because it was a get the job done to get this yeah. sorted mentality. Yeah. yeah, it was like one surgery came up, deal with that, what's next? You know, treatment came up, you know, when are those appointments? Let's do one treatment at a time, you know, to see what side effects Mel had and how she coped, you know, especially in terms of radio and, and chemo, sorry. Um, you know, so it's it's a piecemeal approach. You, you, you can only focus on that next appointment, next treatment, next um, surgery being faced, and then you deal with that, and then you move on to the next. So everything else, it, it sounds simplistic, but everything else becomes superfluous, and you just you do what you can to survive and, and get through this, you know, really intense time. Okay. Uh, so tell me, how did you... How did you pick and choose who you wanted to share information with and how did you go about it? Yeah, so um, we had the idea to actually do a private Facebook group initially. Um, we told a few key people and then we thought there's a few, you know, there's a, a small network that we wanted to keep up to date with what we were doing. Um, at that stage, sort of, I didn't want the news public and getting questions by a million people. Um, so I created quite a small and private group that I added a heap of people to. Um, and then that's where I did updates. So I would do regular updates where I was at, um, the good and the bad. Um, you know, I've just been to this doctor's appointment. Here's what came out of it. And now we're thinking about this. Oh, now look, this has happened. Um, and I found that quite a cathartic process as well. So Rick and I would sit down at the end of the day, I'd draft up what I was thinking and we'd sort of process it together because obviously when you go into an appointment, I think it's always beneficial and a recommendation for anyone going through sort of major life events is to have that secondary person with you because you hear different things um, and particularly for me as the person going through treatment, I sort of focused on key points um, and then Rick as the support person or secondary person came out with other information. So when we did that debrief later, uh, it was quite good to make sure that we both understood where we were at um, and what was going to be coming next. So to then be able to put that out to the network that we chose, uh, it meant that if you had any conflicts with um, anyone or there was any, you know, you didn't want your work to know or those sort of side of things, you could keep it quite close as to who actually had that information. Um, we did sort of spread it wider later, um, but it also means for me that anything about my treatment is in a separate space to my live Facebook feed. So my Facebook feed then didn't get flooded with breast cancer stuff and I don't have it coming up in my Facebook memories and all that sort of side of things. So for me, I found that quite important that I can choose when I want to look at that information again now um, and if I, if I want to at all. Um, so, yeah, I yeah. thought that was a quite an important thing was to have that chosen network of who it was that you did want involved in that process. And then it meant when we needed help on stuff, you know, if we were having a bad week and thought, right, we need someone to do the groceries or someone to help clean the house or whatever, you could put a call out on there and say, this is what we're after right now because that's what people quite often struggle with is how can we help? So if you just give them a few options of we're struggling to cook meals, can you someone give us some dinner? Um, and so we didn't have to do it too many times, but when we did, we definitely had uh, that network around us that would help. Yeah, I think we were quite open from the, the start about the whole situation we were facing um and I think that was um 
a really, really key point in terms of, um, you know, having that control, I guess, over the information that we were sharing and to whom, um, but also set that line for, for those people in our lives that they knew, right, this is what we're facing. We're, um, we're happy to share this information for you, um, you know, and if if you are wanting to help out, just contact us rather than just try and, and do it for us as well. Um, we were, you know, quite lucky, I guess, in a, in a weird sense that we've both got people in our lives who have gone through breast cancer or cancer specific, you know, other forms of cancer as well. So we were able to tap into their knowledge and experience, which was absolutely, um, you know, invaluable for us you know, with what we were facing, you know, got some really great tips as well that, you know, you don't often come across, which was great. And, um, yeah, it just, just provided a very good way of, of putting down boundaries for us, you know, as a couple, um, but also for Mel to say, hey, you know, Ricky is my primary carer and, you know, they're the one that's going to be doing most of the work. Um, but at the same time, you know, we will reach out when we when we need that help too. Sometimes we need a bit of a poke. Certainly I did, um, you know, from work <laughs> to take some time off. I was still working throughout the whole time as well, trying to make sure that our finances were were good. Um, and, I, yeah, I actually got told you need to take time off <laughs> as well, which is really good. Yeah. You mentioned that you were uh, very clear with health professionals saying this is my partner, this is my main carer, this is my default person in an emergency. Did you feel the need to make that clear among your family? Because in all sorts of makeup of families, sometimes you have those who are not accepting or don't recognise your relationship. So did you feel the need to make that, give that clarity to your family? Yeah, for sure. Um, we'd obviously been in a relationship for quite a long time at that point, um, but there was also an element of it that was hidden. Um, but we, you know, we, we were going through a difficult time. Um, us showing affection and support to each other sort of couldn't be hidden at that time because that's what I needed. Um, I needed that you know, I needed Rick to be that close person next to me, no matter the scenario, because, you know, you're a, a vulnerable person at that stage. So when you go even just to a normal family event or something, your mental state is different to what it would have been 12 months before. So um, I think it was clear for particularly family that were close by um, to say, look, you, whilst you love us and, you know, want to help where you can, um, Rick is the primary carer. So, you know, you might be the mum, the sister, the auntie, whatever. Um, while you feel this is important, um, Rick's primary um, and anyone else is really secondary. So if people had other obligations, it was, it was fine because we had a broader network. That secondary network was um, – we had a decent-sized network that we could reach out to different people So um, as we needed it. But, yeah, it was definitely worthwhile getting it clear where yeah. the boundaries were. Yeah, and again, that wasn't something I. It wasn't something as for me as a partner. I wasn't necessarily pushing Mel to do that at all. This was something that Mel did again without even um, us having that discussion. Mel was very clear um, that you know this was the the situation. Um, you know, there's there's people in Mel's family who are within the health system and and you know definitely capable of taking on that caring role 
um, from a med- medical perspective, but Mel was very, very clear, which I was quite relieved at. Um, I was quite concerned, I guess, about not being recognised as that um, significant other for Mel in terms of that caring role, but also relationship role as well. Um, so for that to happen, it was a huge weight off of my shoulders um, and I was actually very thankful that Mel had the, the courage to do that. And it also Did was you- that thing from a, you know, if in a uh, if, if something went wrong, that it was clear that Rick was the person that people needed to defer to, even amongst the family, um, that, you know, even though we weren't married, we'd been together a long time and it was it was Rick that would make the decision on any of those sort of things. Did you face any opposition with that or pushback from from anyone? Um, not specifically. Um, they there was there were times where they wanted to do some family members wanted to do more, and we had to just say not now. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think most people were happy for the. I think a lot of people actually quite appreciated the the group that we created on Facebook as well because we could have people in there and even if we had some family that we didn't see that often but wanted to keep in the loop, they were sort of in that space. Mm. Um, I, th- I think it was more, you know, there was definitely the, the desire to do as much as they could for you because they are family and they, you know, were lamenting the fact that Mel, you know, was going through this and they knew themselves it was quite an intense journey to go on um it was probably more not necessarily pushback from them but it was us actually saying to them you can you can help um by actually doing something else you know they needed to take a break themselves before you know things got more intense in terms of Mel's journey um you know it was we knew there would be a lot of rough patches coming up and that would probably be the time that we would need their help. But from the the, the first um, appointment where the diagnosis was actually given, it was official, it was like, okay, so we've got, a, a, I say a simple surgery, but it's, it's not simple, but that was the first thing. Um, we can deal with that. That's okay. Um, having done surgeries myself, I knew what was involved in, in surgeries in general, but the other stuff we knew that's when we would need that help. So we, you know, had to actually... Um, give them a bit of pushback, I guess, if that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Want to connect with other people who understand what you're going through at any time of the day or night? VCNA's online network is available for people at different stages of their breast cancer journey, as well as family and friends. For more information, visit bcna.org.au forward slash online network. In any family situation, you always have people that you're closer to than others and uh, yet when there's a crisis of any sort, people, you know, band together and it's like, let's, you know, we're all a team. Yeah, Um, for sure. You've obviously, Mel, you know, when you don't always have everybody recognising your partner, um, how did you juggle that with um, okay, so you're sort of not really comfortable in my uh, relationship status, but you're still my family and you want to help me through this, you know, experience. Yeah. Um, I think that's just having those clear roles and, as Rick said before, kind of giving them spaces where they can help. Um, so I've got family who are nurses and so 
didn't really need them in the initial stages, but when it came time to uh, changing dressings or assisting is, does this wound look okay and cleaning and those sort of side of things, I was able to reach out to that family and say, can you help there? Um, you know, I've got other family that uh, were good at preparing food. And so it's you know, at that point it's almost like the – the relationship, in a way, gets a little bit sidelined. Like their their primary focus at that point was me, and what could they do to support me? Um, and as a consequence, obviously, then support Rick as well. Um, but it was yeah, we just kind of made it clear. Yeah, and I think I think we're pretty lucky, especially you know, um, for those in Mel's family that aren't necessarily wholeheartedly embracing of of the relationship that we've had and and have now, is that they still will respect the fact that we um, are in a relationship. Um, and so that's been, I guess, um, a big benefit for us in this sense that, yes, we were able to um, say to them, look, I'm primary carer, but at the same time we will have you along for the ride. If, yeah, you know, a very interesting ride that it was. Um but I think for me as, as Mel's partner, I made sure that any instruction that was being given was coming from Mel. So, you know, I became very conscious of that dynamic between us as a couple but also as, you know, the broader family that we were dealing with. So everything came from Mel. It didn't look like a, I was determining everything because, you know, again, this isn't about, about me. Yes, I've definitely got Mel as my primary focus in this whole journey, but I was also conscious of that messaging that, you know, it, it wasn't. I didn't want to be that person that says, you know, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're not to do this, you're not to come at this time, you know, that type of thing. It's One, it didn't feel right for me because that's for Mel to, to be telling people, but also aware of that other stuff of that perception being seen as, you know, I don't want to be that, that bossy queer partner who's, you know, controlling the whole situation and not wanting the family involved and stuff, which certainly wasn't the case. So, yeah, it's all these other things that go on in the background that... I guess people don't realise as well. And just to add to the complexity of that year of, of treatment and, and surgeries for Mel, that was the same year that we had the marriage equality postal survey debacle through that year. So that was all going on at the same time as well. So it was just such a weird 12-month period. It really was you know, a lot going on for both of us. Mel, you mentioned that once you had that diagnosis and you were going through treatment, you weren't the same person you were before. All of a sudden, you know, the goalposts had changed and you needed different things. Ricky, were you able to support Mel physically and emotionally like you wanted to in a public setting, in a in, in all, whether it was, you know, with family, in the in the medical setting, were you able to uh, offer her that comfort? Oh, I have to think back four years now. Um, I hope so. <laughs> um, it was, I th I'd like to say yes. Um, thinking back, it's, yeah, it was still, I was still very cautious, I guess, in medical settings when we were, um, you know, having appointments, um, you know, chemo appointments, radio appointments, um, any surgeries Mel had, you know, when we had to rush to the, the emergency department one night because Mel's appendicitis, this appendix, sorry, decided to join the party and you needed that removed and stuff like that. It's for an LGBTIQA plus person and couples and families, you know, you're always second guessing 
how safe an environment will be, even though in theory, you know, going into the, the public hospital, it should be a safe place to go. But more often than not, it's it, it's it's not for, for some people. So um, I was always second guessing. I was always on, on alert when we were, we were in those settings. You know, once we met a particular practitioner once or twice, I knew I could relax in that regard. Um, but still, you know, you're in waiting rooms. You're just in a, in a setting where you're in a mix of, of a huge variety of people. You don't know how they're, they're going to react seeing a um, LGBTIQA plus couple together. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was like, you know what, I, I don't give a crap either. You, you know, <laughs> my partner's going through cancer and if she wants to hold my hand, then so be it. Um, you know, as Mel said, we'd been together for quite a few years at that stage and you, you can't hide that part of your relationship you want to be able to touch someone um sensitively on the shoulder on the thigh you know as you would between most couples it's yeah it, it sucks that you have to second guess this stuff but a lot of lgbtqa plus people will say that you do you're always you're always second guessing your environment around you for safety yeah mel how did you react mentally do you did you feel like you uh, got the support even as a couple? Do you felt like you needed the support of others that had walked the same path that you had? And did you find it? Yeah. Yeah, having a having a support around that was that lived experience um, was good. We had had some friends that had gone through cancer, we'd had some family members and things. So it was good to reach out to them. I found some, you know, online groups, um, but that sort of that combo of uh, queer and um, cancer, <laughs> uh, there wasn't sort of a network of that around. Um, it was more, you know, if we needed sort of queer support, you'd go to one spot and if you needed cancer support, you'd go to another spot. Um, so I think it's important to have those networks where those areas do cross over. Well, I so say we, we kind of struggled to find the LGBTIQ-specific space, you know, in terms of support and lived experience for, for breast cancer. That was one thing I hunted out for weeks on end trying to find something that I, I could go to as a carer but also would be safe in doing so as, you know, part of an LGBTIQA plus couple. Um, I know Mel connected with quite a few uh, breast cancer groups here in Adelaide, which was fabulous, and I was I was relieved that Mel could connect with others um, in that same scenario. Um, and they've been lovely. They've welcomed me into those groups, which has been fabulous, but I'm also conscious that's not my journey, you know, that's not my experience in regards to this um, as well. So it was, yeah... It was bittersweet, I guess. Mel had her connections, which was great, and, and I was still trying to find those connections. So, yeah. Yeah. We've got a long way to go, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely would say there's definitely some, yeah, a few more steps to go. <laughs> yeah. Ricky and Mel, the system's not perfect, though. In an ideal world, we would have people being out and proud and feeling no discomfort or risk in asking for what they need. But that's not where we're at at the moment, is it? No. Unfortunately, Lord, I, you, I don't know if you want to jump in first, Mel. Um, no, I mean, it's really crappy to have to say to someone, look, you know, 
you're going to have to weigh up if this is something that you can do safely or not. If it is important as part of this process specifically, um, you know, in the work that I do with people, that's something, a discussion we often have of when is it safe to disclose, is it, you know, do the benefits outweigh the negatives in that regard? Um, you know, and we shouldn't have to second guess this when we're going in to get, you know, life-saving treatment for breast cancer or any particular condition at all. But we know that it, it's not necessarily a reflection of of us as an LGBTIQA plus person. We should have the safety. We should have the the capacity to share this as part of, of who we are as a person. But the the staff need training. It's, the hospitals need training. They need upskilling. They need you yeah. know more knowledge in terminology and treatment Absolutely. and all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's definitely reflective of you know. I know for a fact that there's there's no component within tertiary degrees for for doctors, for nurses, for any allied health practitioner that focus on this specific community. You know, it might be mentioned once in a lecture, but there's no specific unit. So by the time health practitioners do come out into the community, they are very lacking knowledge, unfortunately. And, you know, it's once you start venturing into parts of the LGBTI community, such as the trans and gender diverse community or people with intersex variations, you know, this is stuff that is really quite important. It's quite crucial to to their well-being, but crucial to to their safety as well when receiving this treatment. So it's definitely something needed across all parts of uh, the health system what would your um what would your advice be to those who are about to walk this path you know as to di- disclose uh what are some tips that you might offer as they as they navigate their own path and everybody's experience is different there's not a template yeah. no matter who you are yeah. but there might be some others that benefit from your experience. I think where you can, having those clear boundaries can really help, um, you know, whether it's family, friends, doctors, those sort of side of things, um, making it clear who your support person is. You know, if you're, if you're in a couple, this is my partner, that they are to be involved in the decision-making. So for me, as I said before, I found it beneficial to have that information up front. Um, you know, if it was a single person, the need for disclosure, I mean, technically it's a body that has cancer. Like it shouldn't matter what the, you know, gender or sexuality is. It's a body that has cancer and they should be getting the same treatment. Um, It's just the attitudes of the people giving the treatment can sometimes change once they find that piece of information out. Um, And you are in a vulnerable state. So if, you know, my only thought would be if you were a single person, whether you it was important to have that piece of information up front or not or just to make it clear who your support person is at that time. And obviously to Um, make sure that in your medical forms that you actually make that clear too so that when you're filling out those those legal forms and, you know, who to contact in an emergency that it is your nominated person. Yeah, Yeah, and and a safe person for you. Yeah, and and I think that's that's something that isn't, necessarily discussed generally within the the community like the broader population is you know the idea of power of attorney or you know your formal will and and stuff like that too i we will openly admit we still haven't done one ourselves so which is pretty you know pretty much cool in the kettle black um but you know we're, we're quite aware of 
even if people do verbally acknowledge and have, you know, someone written down in those um, intake forms as someone being the nominated support person or in emergency contact, sometimes that um, it's not respected or, you know, other family members can take over um, and have that legal capacity to do that by law, which is really quite scary. Um, but it's, I guess, yeah, going through cancer in, in general, having your, your person to rely on but having a support team, you know, a group of close people who might know your situation intimately, um, that you can trust and respect, you know, having them close by ready to jump in whenever you need it. You know, we've got a close circle of friends that they were the, the go-to for us when we needed to to have that one of us needed a break or you know food cooked or things you know to help us out along the way yeah and you can have different people for different things you Absolutely. know this this group of people is for the light-hearted stuff where we don't want to talk about cancer at all yeah. these people know all the intricate details and are happy to get into the nitty-gritty yeah. um, these people are good for advice on how to cope with stress or those sort of side of things so it was good to have that range um, I also think it's important to probably at that time, um, in some ways, pick your battles. Mm. Um, you're, you're going through Sorry. a major event. Um, uh, yes, obviously you want the the best treatment by everyone possible, um, but sometimes it might be that you just have to think of yourself at that time and just, you know, cut people off or invite other people in, yeah. you know, do, do what's best for you at that time, um, get through what you need to get through, and then, you know, if you need to talk to others after that, um, do that then. But, yes, same with if you get treatment by certain people, not how you're expecting. It could be that you don't raise the matter then. You could note it down and raise it later or get the support person to raise it. You don't have to fight everything at once. Yeah. Get yourself through the treatment it's, process. It's, it's weighing up the context that you're facing at, at that point in time, um, you know, how well you're feeling. You know, if you are going through chemo, that's going to knock you for six, you know. You're going to be feeling ab ab absolute, absolutely horrible. Um, it's weighing up, you know, the actual geographic location you're in. Metropolitan areas tend to be a bit safer than regional areas. So, you know, folk living in, in the regional area um, will know that attitudes towards LGBTIQA plus people and communities in general aren't anywhere near as great as perhaps they might be here in the metro area. And, you know, immediately it's, it's still not perfect by all shape and means here, but I guess there's that little bit extra element of safety here in the, in the urban urban centre of the state. Um but it's knowing, you know, you do. I mean, this is part and parcel for any LGBTIQA plus person when they go to seek health support, advice, treatment, and things like that. You wait. You have to wait up. You can't just go in and go straight to it because inevitably you're always going to be thinking about it. So it's yeah, it sucks. It really does. <laughs> Yeah, but I think you're right. You've got to put your health first, don't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And I think finding the, you know, I, I found great benefit in the different online support networks that I found um, because they did have that lived experience. You, you could complain to them about a particular thing and there would be someone in that group that had had a similar experience or they would be like, yep, I can understand. I didn't quite go through that, but I had X, Y, Z happen. Um, so I think, yes, you can have all your family and friends be, you know, as helpful as they like, but I think finding that uh, network as well, whatever, whether it's in person or online or whatever of 
people that you can connect with with a shared experience um, is very beneficial. Which is why BCNA has set up the online group yes. for yeah. LGBTIQ plus communities, which yeah, we're, we're really excited about. Yeah. And it's 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 a new area, but we're learning and we're listening and uh, yeah. we're looking forward to offering that safe space, uh, which is moderated and, yeah, uh, and monitored so that people can feel safe and um, can ask those questions that they are perhaps not comfortable asking, mm. you know, other people, which yeah. is really good. It's exciting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and you've come out on the other side and you were able to get married yes. this year, which yeah. is, is, is certainly a silver lining, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah, it all is. things considered. Yeah. <laughs> sure, you know, hashtag COVID, but, you know, um, we got there, finally got there. Yeah. It only took 19 years, but we got there. Yeah, no. and it was a very, we made sure it was a very uh, party sort of celebration vibe to it. We wanted that really. You know, we'd been together 19 years. That The formal side of it was just really a formality. It was that being around the people that had supported us over the years and, you know, being there during the treatment, being there, um, you know, through family emergencies and, you know, redundancies yeah. and all sorts of things. And we'd finally come out the other side and it was like, let's have this big party. So yeah. I think it's important yeah, to, you know, if you do get to a milestone, have a significant celebration as well. Celebrate any sort of Abs- milestone. Absolutely. You know, that, that year that Mel had her treatment and, you know, we had a heap of other stuff happened. Um yeah, a few more family deaths, unfortunately, um, redundancies. You know, then a global pandemic just to throw into the mix. It's, it's been a big turning point, I think, for both of us realizing there are specific things that we want, we want to celebrate. You know, and why shouldn't we? We celebrate that. We've we've gone through a lot, not just in the past four years, obviously, but before that as well. So, yeah, let's let's get into it. And it was it was a massive celebration, which we loved, absolutely loved. Great day. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Congratulations. And thank you for sharing your story with us on Upfront today. Also, under the guidance of BCNA's LGBTIQ plus advisory group, also in our show notes, you'll find numbers to call if you want to speak to someone about getting help in navigating the health system or accessing emotional support. And there's also a list of terrific resources. This podcast was brought to you with thanks to Cancer Australia. BCNA's My Journey has a range of specific resources related to the LGBTIQ plus community and breast cancer. So visit myjourney.org.au. Thanks for joining us on Upfront. I'm Kelly Curtin. See you next time.